Well, it's kind of coincidence, but kind of not a coincidence that I would preach a sermon on dealing with differences given the kind of on-the-edge sermon I preached two two weeks ago when I was here. Uh, I would say, and if on some things you think differently, God will make it clear to you. But um, it's only partially coincidental. Um, We have some young people in the congregation. Uh, Young people, do you always see eye to eye with your parents? Or maybe I should say, do your parents always see eye to eye with you? Probably not. As members of this congregation, my guess is that there are some differences. Uh, Differences in the way we think, differences in how we behave as Christians, husbands and wives. I'll bet even if some of you have been married a long time, you're not always on the same page, are you? My wife and I are celebrating our 40th this coming summer, and um, those have been 40 good years. We're still not on the same page uh, about some things. We have differences, I'll bet if you have a close friend, even with your closest of friends, you have differences. Differences can have one of two results. They can either pull us closer to each other, or they can push us apart from each other. The question this morning is not, do differences among us exist? The question is, how do we deal with those differences? And these two verses that I have read, verses that I think we often neglect, because as we'll see, the verses that come right before them are so well-known and so popular, and because our Bible translations put a large break in between the previous verses and the ones that we have read, we often don't read these verses. We kind of stop at the end of the previous section and then turn our Bibles elsewhere. But in these two short verses, we have three principles for how to deal with differences that exist among us on all sorts of levels. And here's our first principle. The first principle is strive for unity. In your relationships, when there are differences, unlike the kind of common trend in our culture that just kind of wants to say all truth is Truth, your truth, my truth, even though my truth is different than your truth, it's all true. And there's no real striving to get on the same page because there might be 5,000 pages and they're all true. And I think the Bible takes a different approach. Uh, we, We have to have as a goal being on the same page with each other in our families, in our friendships, in the local congregation. Now, when the Apostle Paul says all of us who are mature. There's actually two possible interpretations of these simple words. Paul could be speaking in a very straightforward and literal way that everybody who's mature uh, in the congregation at Philippi or here, on the other hand, there might be a touch of sarcasm in Paul's letter at this point, and he might be saying all of us who are mature, I think that he's being sarcastic here. Uh, And we'll see why as we pull these verses into the context of the preceding verses. 
But I think when Paul says all of us who are mature, or perhaps in some of your translations, all of us who are perfect, there was at the church at Philippi uh, a tendency for some people to think that they had reached perfection. I remember listening to some teaching by R.C. Sproul once on the doctrine of perfection, and he said that he was at a conference teaching on that at one point, and there was a young man who was in his early 30s who came up to R.C. Sproul after the lecture that he gave, and he said, "Uh, Dr. Sproul, I want you to know I've reached perfection. (laughs) And, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Sproul said something like, taking him to a number of places in the Apostle Paul, where Paul says, near the end of his ministry, I'm chief of sinners. He says, so you're telling me that uh, at the end of your long, like uh, 23, 24, 25, 26 years, you've reached a state of maturity and perfection that the Apostle Paul, you can hear, if you know Sproul, you can hear, that the Apostle Paul uh, never reached at the end of his life and ministry. And the fellow looked him square in the eye and he said, yes. Well, that's not a new, that's not a new doctrine. It was, it was around in the first century. Paul was dealing with that doctrine of perfection at the church of Philippi. So I think he's speaking kind of uh, ironically, sarcastically here when he says, all of you who are perfect or mature. Uh, but regardless of whether he's speaking in a straightforward way or whether he's using some, uh, some biting irony, It leads to the same place, and that is, Paul says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Well, what view of things? That's when we have to put this in the context of the previous verses. Paul has a very specific reference in mind when he says you should take such a view of things. So drop back just a couple of verses in your Bible to verse 12. These verses are well known. Not that I have already obtained all of this. See, Paul's saying he hasn't obtained this level of perfection or maturity. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, in case you missed the point that I just made, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm not that mature. I'm not perfect. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's dealing with this problem of perfectionism at the church in Philippi. And he says, I'm not perfect yet. I haven't reached that goal. I'm still striving after it. It's unfortunate that in our Bibles, like in my NIV, in big, black, bold letters, it says now, following Christ's example as if somehow we have transitioned into a completely different topic. But then Paul goes on in verse 15 to say, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. What view? The view that I just gave you in the previous verses, folks. None of us have arrived yet. We all have our baggage. We all have our issues. There are differences among us. That's what Paul is talking about. Notice he says that we should Take such a view of these things. All should view themselves in the same way that the Apostle Paul does. To think that you are perfect is a sure sign that you are not. All mature Christians should be united 
in the doctrine that we lack perfection. That's what Paul is saying when he says all of us who are mature should agree that we lack perfection. But while Paul has a very specific uh, text in view, there's a general application here. As we mature, we should be moving more and more toward unity. As a congregation matures, it should be moving more and more toward unity. As a marriage relationship where friendships or family child or parent child relationships mature, those relationships should be moving more and more to unity in how we think and how we act. That's why Paul says earlier in Philippians, in Philippians 2 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being like minded. And that's why later on in Philippians 4.2, Paul says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche. Uh, How many of you know a Euodia? Anybody know a Syntyche? Those are kind of old school names. Um, Two two women, leading women in the church at Philippi, uh, influential women, uh, they were not on the same page with each other, and everybody knew it. And so very publicly, in a letter to the church, Paul says, I plead with you, get along with each other. You see, it all goes to make the point. What's the first principle? How do you deal with differences? You don't deal with differences by just saying, oh, they don't really matter. You think what you think. I think what I think. You live the way you want to live. I live the way I want to live. As Christians who are committed to this idea of truth, that's not how we approach differences. We approach differences by having a goal that we're shooting at, and not each other. Uh, Even if we do carry, even if we can carry concealed weapons because we have permits. Uh, Our goal is that we have unity, unity in what we think, and unity in how we live. That's the first way we deal with differences. We strive for unity. Well, here's what frustration is. Frustration is having a goal and being blocked from reaching it. Now, if I have a goal and I think you're blocking me, that kind of frustration we call anger. If I have a goal and I think I'm blocking me, that kind of frustration we call guilt. But it's all the same thing. It's that feeling of frustration that we have inside because we have a goal and that goal is not realized. So how do we have unity as a goal and not live in frustration all the time? Well, that's our second principle that Paul goes on to articulate. The second principle... Relax. Relax. Relax along the way to reaching that goal of unity. Notice Paul says, and if on some point you think differently. I love this one. Again, there are two possible interpretations here. I'll tell you which one I think. Uh, One thing Paul could be saying is if on some point you think differently than me, the Apostle Paul. On the other hand, he could be saying if on some point you think differently with each other. 
I think he's saying, if on some point you think differently with me, the Apostle Paul. That makes the best sense in the flow of Paul's thought here. But again, regardless of which one we take, it comes to the same point. The point is, if on some point you think otherwise than you really should be thinking. Wrong thinking is implied here. If there's some kind of misunderstanding going on. What amazes me about this passage is how relaxed the Apostle Paul is with the believers at Philippi who had this screwy idea that they had become perfect. Paul was not bent out of shape here. Paul was patient. Paul was relaxed. Not because he had abandoned his goal of unity in the church. That's, he wasn't relaxed because it didn't matter what anybody thought. He wasn't relaxed because it didn't matter if there were differences because everybody's truth is true or because nobody's truth is true. That's not why the Apostle Paul was relaxed. How could Paul, the Apostle, say, if you think differently than I do, how could he say, I'm relaxed with that? Now notice... In all deference to Dr. Sproul, somebody that I have learned much from over the years, it's one thing for somebody to disagree with Dr. Sproul. It's another thing for somebody to disagree with the Apostle Paul. But that's what Paul's saying. Notice what Paul could have said. Paul could have said, if on some point you think differently, Get in line, because I'm the Apostle Paul. Would that have been wrong for him to say? He could very well have said that, but he didn't. And this shows how relaxed the Apostle Paul was with these differences. Now, a little caveat here. Paul's not always quite so relaxed in his letters. When the differences have the heart of the gospel at stake... Righteousness, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul's not relaxed at all with those who disagree with him. But with these more peripheral issues, and it's hard to say. I often think of doctrine as a target. There's the bullseye. And on that bullseye, there cannot be differences tolerated. But, you know, then you have those rings where you get a a 10, you get a 5, you get a 1, you miss the target altogether. You know, the, the further away you get from the heart of it, the easier it is to be relaxed. And those are the kinds of issues that that Paul is dealing with here. One of the problems we have with differences is that we think they're all in the bullseye. Everything is a huge, major issue. Everything is essential. Everything is critical. That's another uh, sermon. Takes us a little bit beyond the scope of this. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, if on some point you think differently, you're wrong, I'm right, get in line, I'm the apostle, you're not. He says, if on some point you think differently... That, too, God will make clear to you. Wow, if Paul can say that, 
How much more should those words be in our hearts and on our tongues? I'm relaxed about it because I know in due time God's going to make it clear to you. He was patient. He was relaxed. He could be because God's goal is unity. God's thoughts are true. And God's goal is to make all of you like Him. And if God makes you all like Him, then you're going to be all like each other. When you all think just like God thinks, you'll be thinking just like each other thinks. When you act like God acts, you'll all be acting the same. God's goal is clearly to bring you to unity with Himself, and that inevitably means that God's goal is to bring you into unity with each other. And God's going to reach His goal. He's all wise. He knows exactly how to get you to unity. He's all powerful. He doesn't lack any of the power that He needs to bring you to unity. He's all loving. He's well motivated in His goal to bring you to unity. It's going to happen. And because you know it's going to happen, you can be relaxed. If you're not sure it's going to be going to happen, no wonder you're anxious and uptight and on edge. But if you're sure it's going to happen, you can relax. God's goal is unity. He's going to reach that goal. Now, as, I, as I've said, relaxing in the meantime doesn't mean that you're not concerned about the goal anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't talk about differences Not talking about differences is one sure way not to deal with them in a healthy way. Relax means don't be so uptight because you feel threatened when other people don't think the way you think and other people don't do the way you do. Relax means be patient with others just as Christ is continuously being patient with you. Relax means strive after the goal of unity with a quiet confidence that it's going to happen because it's God's goal after all. And he's got everything that he needs to bring you to unity with himself and with each other. So what is the third principle? The first is to strive after unity Really strive after it, work hard for it, but you do so in a relaxed way. The third is, this is the tough one, live consistently. Notice Paul says what we have already attained. The level of understanding that you've already gained. The level of conformity to the will of God that you've already been able to reach. Not perfectly, but truly. And if we uh, can just look around the room and see all the people that we know, we see that we're all at various points on the journey of life, aren't we? We're all at different levels of maturity. And it doesn't really have a lot to do with chronological age, does it? There are people who are much younger than us who are in some ways much much more mature than we are. We have different upbringings. When you stop and think about it, 
who we are and what we think and how we act is so much influenced by our upbringings. And they surely have been so different. Uh, my wife and I, uh, oh, probably about 12 years ago, realized that we had a, um, a cross-cultural marriage. Now, to look at us, you would have never thought it. We're both pretty white. Um, but uh, we, we really had a cross-cultural marriage. We were having a dinner with a man from the congregation that my Hungarian grandfather had helped plant. And, and uh, he was telling us about what, what old-school Eastern European grandfathers were like. And I said, man, this guy's describing my grandfather to a T. And then I said, you know, he's really describing my dad to a T. What's the next thing I said? <laughs> he's describing me to a T. I got such, I had such an epiphany as to why I was the kind of husband I was and the kind of father I was. Well, you see, my grandparents are all immigrants. My dad's parents little after 1900, came from Hungary. My mother's parents, a little after 1900, came from Poland. Uh, I am like Eastern European. I probably told you about the DNA thing. Yes? 90% Eastern European. And not just in DNA, but in culture. That's my... Now, Adele, on the other hand, as I probably have told you, Adele could be a member of the DAR. Her family goes back to the American Revolution. Some of her people came across on a ship with William Penn. She's old school. She's really far away from this Eastern European thing. And we just looked at each other as this guy was talking to us, and we said, no wonder we're not on the same page with what I'm supposed to be doing. It's obviously we're on the same page with what she's supposed to be doing, right? Right. No wonder there are these kind of unmet expectations. Different upbringings, different experiences, different levels of Bible education. You know, I have some students that you you think seminarians all know their Bible well, right? I have some students who have gone to a Presbyterian church from the time they were born and they know the catechism and they know their Bible. I have some students who were converted out of paganism a year ago in college and hardly know the books of the Bible in order. Different levels of biblical understanding. But we've all attained. We're we're all somewhere on the path, right? What we have already obtained, here's the tough part, Let us live up to that. Put what you know into practice. Put a priority on your own living in keeping with what you believe to know as the truth. Here's why that's tough. It is much more comfortable for me to focus on where I think you are wrong theologically than it is for me to focus on where I am living in consistently with what I believe to be the truth. Why do you think we're always pointing out the errors in other people? Because it's a way of deflecting from where we should be looking, and that's on the inside. By the way, if you see stuff in other people that you don't like, I'm guessing maybe 90% of the time you're looking in a mirror. But you don't want to deal with it in you. It's much more comfortable to deal with it in other people. 
It is simply the case that it is easier to focus on where you think other people are wrong than to focus on where you know you're not living in keeping with what you believe to be right. And that's why the Apostle Paul says the third step, live, make it your goal to live consistently with what you already believe to be the truth. Now, there's one key in conclusion, and that key is Christ. Just stop and think about Jesus for a moment. Christ's goal was unity. He lived and he died in order to unite you to the Father. He lived and he died and he was raised, therefore, in order to unite you to each other. Like the Father, Christ's goal was unity. And, you know, believe it or not, not all of Christ's disciples in the first century got everything that he said. They weren't always on the same page, were they? But Christ was relaxed in the meantime with them and with you. Stop and think about it. I've said this before in one way or another, but I believe that it's really important. Christ could have brought you to unity instantaneously when you became a Christian. To put it theologically, in our catechism, as we're talking about justification, we say that justification is an act of God's grace. That means when God justifies you, the judge puts the gavel down and says, you are no longer accountable for your sins. You're freed from them right now, past, present, future. Go home and celebrate. It's done in a moment. It's an act of God's free grace. In our catechism, though, when we define sanctification, becoming more like Christ, the catechism says that sanctification is a work of God's free grace. And trust me, the folks who wrote the catechism thought about every word they put in there. Why did they say justification is an act and sanctification is a work? Because justification is done in a moment and sanctification is a lifelong process. By the way, who designed it that way? God did. Stop and think about the implications of it. He didn't have to. He could have sanctified you perfectly as an act at the same time that by an act he justified you. And from that moment on, you would have lived the rest of your life in perfection. You would have thought just like God. You would have acted just like God, which would have meant you all thought alike and you all acted alike. God could have done it that way, but he didn't. What's one implication of that? He must be okay with you gaining this unity in thought and behavior over a long period of time through process. He must be okay with you getting there slowly and gradually, because if he wasn't okay with that, he would have done it the other way. Now, if God is okay with you not thinking and you not acting in perfect unity with who he is and what he thinks, but is willing to let you get there over time, what's the implication for how you treat other people? 
who don't think like you think and act like you act. If, you, if, if God is okay with you getting there through process, maybe you can be okay with other people getting there through process. Rather than expecting them to get on the right page immediately, the way you don't. Christ, in a very profound sense, is relaxed along the way. Content to bring you to unity with the Father and therefore with each other through process. And if Christ can be relaxed with you, then you can grow in being relaxed with others as together you grow toward that goal of unity in the faith and unity in how you live. And not only was Christ's goal unity, not only was Christ relaxed in the meantime, but Christ alone lived consistently with what he believed to be the truth. That's where justification comes in, yes? You see, the, the miracle of the gospel is that in spite of the fact that none of us in here have reached perfection and we do not live consistently with what we believe to be true, You know how the Father views you right now? When he looks down from heaven and looks at you right now, he says, there's a woman who lives absolutely consistently with what she believes to be true. And you you look around and you say, who, me? (laughs) And he says, yes, you. Because you have been clothed with the consistency of Christ's life. And all of your inconsistencies... He took on himself in his body on the tree and he paid the penalty for them. That's justification. That God views you as those who live absolutely consistently with what the truth is. You know it, you understand it, you get it, you live in keeping with it. And then there's this sanctification thing where in your day-to-day life, that's not really who you show up to be, yes or yes. And so God is in the process of actually molding you and shaping you more and more into that person that you are in Christ. As I've no doubt said before, rather than thinking of sanctification as becoming what we're not, oh, I'm just not consistent enough with what I believe to be the truth. How about if we think about sanctification as becoming who we truly are in Christ? The old has passed. The new has come. You are united perfectly as a congregation, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as friends. You are united perfectly in Christ. You are relaxed along the way. You're perfectly relaxed when other people don't think like you think and do. You might not know it, but you are. You're perfectly relaxed. And you are living in keeping with what you believe to be the truth. That's your new identity in Christ. And sanctification is becoming these beautiful people that God has made you to believe. Through the perfect work of His Son and our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We bless you for the wonder of our justification and our sanctification. 
We pray that you, by your word, would create deeper faith uh, in our hearts and that you would bring each of us further down that path of being committed to the goal of unity, being relaxed along the way, and striving more and more to live consistently with what we know to be the truth, taking our eyes to one degree or another off of how other people don't think the way we think and live the way we live. Thank you that all of this is a gift of your marvelous grace to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we give you our thanks in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.